Great worship this morning. Not great. Fantastic. Well, I'm not going to mention the weather. I know everybody's fed up with the weather. Um, and I'm not going to mention the fact that um, the sermons are starting to feel a little bit like Masterpiece Theatre on PBS. You remember how that used to start? Masterpiece Theatre is bringing you this week. Um, well, that's not what we're going to do this week. We're going to, um, we're going to look at the next chapter in the Acts of the Apostles. And um, we're going to look at an important phase in the story that Luke is presenting to us. Remember, Luke has been writing a bold narrative, a narrative that intertwines the life of Jesus and the first disciples. And as he has been presenting that narrative, as he has been weaving the threads of those stories together, he has been bringing to us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the patterns, the pictures, the images that God wants us to hold in our hearts and as we see these patterns in the lives of these early believers and we see the pattern first exemplified in the person of Jesus, he wants us to imitate their lives. Imitate the lives of the disciples as they imitate Jesus and imitate Jesus as he does everything that he sees the Father doing. So here in Acts chapter 21, we're going to read a kind of travelogue <clears throat> of what Paul is up to on his way to Jerusalem. And we're going to read the first 16 verses. It's quite a long but interesting passage. So let's read it together from verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from the Ephesian elders, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was unloaded, where our ship unloaded its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt Tied, it, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. 
After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So we have this amazing travelogue of Paul and his companions leaving the beach at Miletus, a a small town uh, just to the south of Ephesus, and then going through the various Greek islands on a variety of boats and eventually making landfall in Syria at Tyre and then continuing down the coast until they found themselves at Caesarea Maritima, one of the great cities of that coastland built by the Romans and today uh, represents itself with extensive archaeological ruins that are really quite amazing to behold. So here, Paul and his companions, Luke, an eyewitness of this particular journey himself, have made the journey and are hearing the same thing over and over in each place that they go. Suffering and imprisonment await Paul. There's no mention of his companions. Just Paul will be bound, will be imprisoned, and will suffer when he gets to Jerusalem. And the natural tendency, the natural protective instinct of his friends and his spiritual family, of course, is to try to dissuade Paul from the journey that he's committed to making. So we have to, we have to just ask ourselves, what is all of this, what's this all about? What's, what's it here for? And what is the intention of God the Holy Spirit as he inspires Luke to write this particular portion of the story in the way that he does? He could have condensed it uh, quite considerably. He doesn't have a great deal of space to commit to the life and times of Paul. Paul is now, of course, the central character of the Acts of the Apostles. But why would he spend so much time focusing on what it is that Paul is being asked by his companions not to do and yet committing himself to do it? Well, when you look at the way that Luke constructs his narrative, he makes sure that we realize that this is a moment when the story is going to take a radical change of direction. And he, he brings to the fore characters that could easily be hidden from our sight. He brings characters from the beginning of the story. He reminds us that Philip was one of the seven. Philip the evangelist, this amazing, legendary character who is carried by the Spirit into places that people could never imagine evangelists going. He's he's speaking and teaching and sharing the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus amongst the Samaritans, people who would hate him. He's visited by angels and sent into the desert to find a singular man on his journey from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, the first African to to acknowledge the name of Jesus, be baptized, and to take the message into that continent. We hear of Philip being carried away 
in the spirit, just like Elijah, just like Elisha from ancient days, and finding himself in a new location that God wants him to share the good news. This is, this is an amazing, legendary character. And here he is, being brought to the fore, and now he has a family, an amazing family that is a kind of prophetic culture, a prophetic community where you can go and hear the voice of God. We hear not only that Philip is present, but we hear that a man who was one of the early disciples, a person from the very beginning, a man from Cyprus who, like Barnabas, was brought to the Lord in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Nason almost certainly would have known each other. And so there's this connection again with the great characters of the beginning of the story. And then there is this almost mythic figure, Agabus. A man who, as a prophet, is named in the New Testament in a way that really no other prophetic voice is named. He's the one who went to the church in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were leading and ministering there to tell them of the famine that would come upon the whole world and of how that famine would seriously affect the followers of Jesus in Judea and Jerusalem. And so all of the new Christians in Antioch gathered an offering and Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem with the offering to support the poor there in that city and in that region. And we know from Paul's own account that it was in that time that he met with Peter again and spoke to James and to John. And they extended to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, the symbol that they were part of the same team. They were doing the same job, even though Paul and Barnabas were called to the Gentiles. This, this illustrious character, Agabus, whose who's prophetic credentials are unrivaled, comes personally to Paul. And as in the Old Testament takes a prophetic enactment to communicate what it is that God wants to say, he takes Paul's belt and ties his, his own hands and feet and then says, in the same way, the people of Jerusalem will bind Paul and imprison him. We have these characters gathering from the story at the very beginning, from the high points of the narrative all along. A bit like in Lord of the Rings, when you get towards the end and you begin to see who all the ring bearers are. Do you remember that moment when you see that Gandalf is one, Galadriel is one, and you go, oh, okay. So these are the people that hold the story together and they've come to witness this final act. That's what we have here in the story that Luke presents to us. So why is it so important? Why is Paul such an important character? To be quite honest with you, he seems stubborn, hard-headed, and a bit of an ass at times. I mean, really, 
You look at him and you think, man, he must have been hard to live with. I wouldn't have liked to meet him for every breakfast. I mean, what is it about Paul that means that not only is he the central character of the Acts of the Apostles, but he's the person who God uses to write the majority of the New Testament. And if you take his team, about three-quarters of it. I mean, Peter, he gets to write a couple of postcards. Matthew, he gets to write, admittedly, a significant gospel. But then the other gospels are written by people who are not members of the Twelve. The only member of the Twelve Disciples who gets a significant role in writing the New Testament is John. So why Paul? Why Paul? What's so important about this former Pharisee who, who was like a fundamentalist terrorist seeking the death of the early believers? Why this character? Why would the Holy Spirit want you to imitate his life? Because that's what you have to come to the conclusion. That, the conclusion that you have to come to is that if God was instrumental in the writing of Scripture in any way, as I believe, of course he was, if all of Scripture is God-breathed, and if the majority of the New Testament is built around the life and ministry of Paul as he seeks to elevate the life of Jesus, then God wants us to imitate Paul. Probably not in the sharp edges of his personality, but there's something tremendously important about Paul. Well, in the story today, I think we begin to see what at least one of the important elements might be in Paul's life that God wants you and I to emulate and imitate. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and like the last time he meets Agabus, he's taking a large collection of money, a large gift of money, from the Gentile churches to the Jewish followers of Jesus. He's taken a large group of people, probably as much as anything, to represent the churches that are giving the gift and also to provide security along the way. If you've got that much money with you and you're in a world where you know, people carry weapons, then of course you want the security of a large group of people. And as Paul leads the group, he appears to be inexorably moving towards what looks like an inevitable experience of suffering and perhaps even death. When Agabus comes, he simply confirms what it is that everyone else is saying. He gives revelation of what it is that God is saying. Now, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says this, he says, when you're listening to prophets in a gathering, perhaps maybe two or three at maximum should speak. 
So two or three prophets should speak. This is in 1 Corinthians 14. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh what it is that's been said. In other words, the individual may bring a revelation, but the community is to offer the interpretation. Yeah? So the prophet doesn't offer the interpretation. And if you look here, Agabus, a man of enormous maturity in his gift, quite clearly, he doesn't offer an interpretation. He simply offers a revelation. The people in the group think they've got the interpretation. Agabus brings the, brings the revelation. The revelation is, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. Everybody says, Paul, we've been hearing this in every place. Our interpretation is, don't go. So the community are tasked with the interpretation. And usually, the individual who is tasked with the application listens carefully to the community and probably puts into practice what it is that he or she is hearing. So, individual revelation, community interpretation, individual application. Get that? Just say to your neighbor, individual revelation, community interpretation, individual application. Have a go. Just to make sure you get it in your head. Have a go. Go on. Yeah? So this is really, this is really key. Because what this is doing is articulating what Jesus said is important about a about a disciple. He said, a disciple is a person who builds their life on the rock. And if you build your life on the rock, you hear what I'm saying and you, you yourself, put it into practice. One of the um, more mature members of the congregation kind of came up to me one Sunday, a few uh, Sundays back, and kind of nudged me and said, do you know what? I've just realized why it is that you don't tell us what to do. And I said, oh, why is that? And, and they said, it's because you think that it's up to us to make the application, not up to you. I said, there it is. There it is. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm not going to tell you how to apply specific revelation that's interpreted in the community. It's up to you. If I take that away from you, I remove your agency as a disciple and your capacity to grow as a believer. So you have to come to this place of realizing I have to hear God for myself, listen to the community, of course, but apply it according to how it is that I sense God is speaking to me. This is what happens so often in Christian circles. A revelation begins to unfold. You see the scriptures together. You listen carefully to what it is that God is saying as you read and study the word. The community begins to sense what it is, is the interpretation. And then individuals begin to adopt what other people 
are applying to their lives. And what happens is this. You start to wear Saul's armor and try to beat a giant. David, the young man, saw that all of the all of the, the troops, the soldiers, the, the, gathered, the gathered military of Israel were shaking in the presence of Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And he looked at him and he thought, I don't know, it looks like a big target to me. I think I could hit his head from about 30 paces. And his brothers thought that he was arrogant and, and stupid. But eventually they brought him to Saul, who knew him as a musician. So he, he came in to Saul, and, and Saul, the king, who was the tallest man in Israel, so probably ought to have been the one to go out and defeat the tallest man in Philistia. He said, uh, so what are you planning to do? He said, well, I mean, I've beaten lions and bears, and God always gave me victory. I'm assuming that this big old bear out there, he can... He can fall in exactly the same way. I'm not worried about him. And Saul said, uh, okay, you look like you're a boy, and he's been a, he's been a fighting man since his youth. Uh, you really want to do this? Yeah, absolutely, I'm certain of it. Okay, well, I'll give you my armor. And so, and so David tried his armor on and said, I can't, I can't fight with this. This is not the way that God designed me. I can't fight with your understanding of how things would, would happen. I can't, I can't win with your understanding of how victory is found. I can only do it from my understanding. So don't wear Saul's armor don't carry another person's conviction. Carry your own. Paul's conviction meant that on this occasion, he broke the rule of thumb. Now, it's not a law. It's not a rule that everybody's got to follow. But revelation, individual, interpretation, community, application, individual. Normally, you're applying the interpretation that people share with you. What Paul said was this, I get what it is that God is saying, but God has said something to me previous to everything else that you're hearing. And what he gave me was this, that my task is to follow the Lord Jesus in being a witness to the Gentiles and the Jews, to the governors and to the kings, and to follow him in the path even though it may cause me suffering. And so, I receive what it is that you say. I recognize that those things will definitely happen. But God has made it clear to me that this is my task. And so I hear your interpretation, but I choose to take my application and not yours. I know these things will happen. And I know that your application is that I shouldn't go to Jerusalem. But my application is, even though those things are going to happen, I'm going to continue. 
Now, this gives us a window into one of the deepest truths of the Christian life. And if you'll listen and attend to this, it will most definitely strengthen your heart and it may well change your life. Because this is what God wants you to understand today. As you look at the life of Paul, that the foundational revelation of your life is meeting Jesus and knowing him personally. The thing that will divide, separate, and in many ways evaluate the church of Jesus Christ is the degree to which people carry the conviction of the call they found when they met Jesus. So quickly, our call gets covered up by the community's ideas and understandings. So quickly, our insecurities lead us to the opinion that other people's understandings and ideas are way more important than mine. And very quickly, we think that other people's information about the Bible is more important than the revelation I've had when I met Jesus face to face. When you met Jesus face to face, that was the moment when God gave you the gift above every gift, the gift that would define and filter and interpret everything else that you hear from everyone else. Because here's the thing. Jesus died that you would know him personally. And in the knowledge of him personally, have sufficient to carry you through every valley and every storm. Of course you need other people. Of course you'll need their comfort and encouragement from time to time. But in the end, the great wonder and mystery of the Christian faith is this. It is an individual relationship, not an individualistic relationship that means that you take no cognizance of what anybody else ever says. Not an individual, individualistic relationship that says that no one else in the world matters. Of course not. You're a human being. You were created for, for, for society. You were created for community. But it's an individual faith. And it's the knowledge of the individual savior who has lived and died and risen for you has revealed himself to you that will carry you through life now the accretions of time and the complexities of life mean that we don't go back to that place but we just start to listen 
to the winds and waves of every wind and doctrine. We begin to listen to all of the stirrings and the, and the shakings of the world around us. And we find that we're not defined by the anchor, but we're defined by the wind and the waves. And so what is it that God will do in your life? What does he do in my life? He'll strip away the extraneous stuff. He'll, he'll shake all of the things that are shakeable. He'll, he'll remove all of the things that you would and I would naturally lean upon, rest upon, rely upon, build upon, only to discover that it's sand. He will wash that away so that you can stand on the certainty of your knowledge of him. He will do whatever it takes for the great gift that he won for you on the cross to be the very place that you stand every day, that you cherish every moment, and that you call upon in your greatest difficulty. This is how the New Testament puts it in the words of James. It says this, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops the capacity to continue to the end. Develops the capacity to continue to the end. The capacity to continue to the end must complete its work so that you may be those whose plan revealed by God is revealed and completed in your life. And so you who've been called by God can be brought together and be made whole and complete. Now, I've expanded the words that you'll find in the translation of the New Testament because sometimes the translation has to use singular English words to convey a whole sentence. Actually, what it says here, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. What, what those words mean, mature and complete, lacking nothing, are simply this. God has a plan that is unfolding from eternity that was activated in your life the moment that Jesus revealed himself to you. And the difficulties that you face are intended to uncover that plan so that you can see it. 
And as you see it, you become confident in it. And as you become confident in it, you choose to embrace it. And as you, en- as you choose to embrace it, so the plan is able to unfold in the way that God intended it to. Because God's not going to do it against you. God's going to do it with you. He wants your partnership. Because he made you for relationship and to represent him. That means that he has to have willing, free agents choosing to embrace the plan. And as he unfolds the plan, he will uncover the plan. And usually uncovering the plan involves difficulty and struggle and test. Because normally the way that we operate is that we just get on with life. And we go to the next thing and we get drawn by this particular attitude and this particular, this particular sensation and, and this particular desire and want. And we find ourselves this bag full of desires and wants being dragged in every other d- direction. But, but what the testing does is it, it, it scrapes away, it, it, it removes all of those and you find yourself right there facing the plan. God has a plan for you. God has a destiny for you. You are special to him. And he has something that he wants you to do. That honestly, I don't know whether anybody else can do it. God knows that. But as far as I understand the scriptures, the plan that he wants to achieve through you can only be achieved through you. And he wants to uncover that plan. And he wants you to embrace that plan. So that you are mature. Paul, he's right there in the midst of this journey to Jerusalem. He's on his heroic quest. And everybody wants him not to go. But all of the difficulties of his life have exposed the plan. Paul has embraced the plan. And even the people who love him, who don't want him to suffer, he knows that he has to keep with the plan because God has revealed this plan through all of the different ups and downs, valleys and mountains of his life. And Paul becomes an example to everyone because of it. Isn't that interesting? God will use the testing to reveal to you the brokenness. We talked about this a lot. He'll reveal to you the brokenness. And as he reveals to you the brokenness, you look at it and you go, how the heck's that ever going to get together again? It's like, it's like being in an archaeological dig and you find an old pot that's been crushed by the layers of time. And you look at it and you think, How does that ever get back together again? But bit by bit, it's cleaned and and dusted and put back together with each other piece. As God uncovers the brokenness in my life and in yours, he's not uncovering it so that we feel ashamed and exposed. We feel powerless and weak. 
He's exposing it so we can look at it and say, wow, God's going to do it with that? And God nods and says, you're dead right I am. Watch this. If you thought the other thing was good, watch this. You see, the thing I think God wants for you is that you have such a clarity, such a conviction in the call that God made upon you. You know that you've been designed for relationship with him. You know that you've been designed to represent him. And if that's all you ever know until the day you die and you carry that every day, what a different person you'll be. And what a different world it'll be around you as you live in that knowledge. But he wants you to know how he wants you to represent him. He'll show you the ministry that you have. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. He'll show you the gifts that he's given you in the toolkit of heaven. He'll show you the community that he's given you to be wedded to and, 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 and walking with. And as you carry that call, that conviction, nothing will sway you because you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You know, you know that in the midst of the brokenness, you're more than a conqueror. You know that the Spirit who is holding together the broken pieces cries Abba, Father, every day. And every day you know you're a child of God. And every day you know that God gives you his armor for you to be able to stand in the midst of the battle. Every day you know that in the midst of the storm, Jesus is with you, speaking to the wind and the waves. Every day when you face lack, he's able to take your bread and fish and feed the multitude every day. And if we had just a few more disciples like that every day, what would happen? Why is Paul lifted up as the great exemplar? Because for all his faults and his angular corners, for all the fact that he looked like a mule at times, he learned that lesson. I think God wants us to teach, to learn, to receive that lesson. Don't you?